Kia ora, and welcome to The Word, Te Kupu, with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Thank you for joining us today on episode number nine, on the 9th of November, 2021, with the incredible guest, Holly Ransom. I was super looking forward to talking to Holly because she is really one of the most distinguished speakers and interviewers of our time, and she's just an absolute delight to talk to and has such insight into the nature of leadership and disruption patterns within business and the world. And we have a fantastic conversation about her book, The Leading Edge, the science of leadership, um, what it means to be a leader and who can qualify as a leader in this world. And the answer might surprise you. It's not just those people that you traditionally think are leaders. Um, We talk about the All Blacks and yeah, we talk about her grandmother and how influential one little act of her grandmother's was during her childhood that set a whole trajectory for Holly to become who she is now having studied a master's at the Harvard Kennedy School of Foreign Policy and yeah just in general having to be able to talk to someone who's had held audience with diverse thought leaders like Malcolm Gladwell, Michelle Obama, Barack Obama the ex-Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. It was just very humbling to talk to her, and she is just super interesting. Unfortunately, the talk got caught, cut a little short because Holly needed to, I think, catch a train. Um, so she promised she'll be back on the show early next year, which would be great. There are a couple of little technical difficulties, but you can overlook them. The, all in all, it was an incredible conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did conducting it. So without further ado, let's welcome Holly to Tekupu. There we go. Can you hear me? Hey, I've got you now. So sorry about that. I was sitting on the awesome. Google Meet. I was like, is that where I'm meant to be? I don't know. And then I just saw your email. So my apologies. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. I should have actually, you can't really include the link on the Google Meet because they expire on Anchor. But anyway, uh, it's amazing to have you. Thanks so much oh, for taking so much for the time, invite. Holly. I appreciate it. Awesome. I was going to say to start off, I was like super nervous and then. I was like, wow, I'm going to have to be interviewing Holly. And she's had all these super esteemed guests. And then I was oh like, oh my gosh, it's going to be ridiculous. That would be like for you to interview these like thought leaders. <laughs> I was like, How is it for her to sit there with Michelle Obama and Barack Obama? So that kind of calmed me down. Know, too well. It's pretty wonderful, isn't it? To be able to <laughs> have the opportunity in this space to talk to interesting people and to have them share candidly. Yeah, exactly. How I was going to say is to start off with, how do you do that with your... How do you brace anxiety in those situations? I mean, I know you go into it in your book, which we'll talk about in a bit, but how do you do it in the moment? Is it belly breathing? Is there something that you hold on to? Um, I think it's interesting. I very rarely find that I'm nervous in the moment. I think if, yeah. if those thoughts come in, they're often in the lead up. And it's for me really about the discipline of kind of my mindset and refocusing on kind of what, yeah. like, what am I here for? I'm here, I'm here for the audience. I'm here for the guest. Um, yeah. My job's to be present. So it's really kind of trying to anchor on, I think, my why. And then uh, definitely I, I, you know, previously and more probably when I do stuff that's 
keynotes more than than interviews like sometimes I'll be really intentional about like what music I'm listening to or something like that on the way but I think a lot more with interviews it's it's often you know close your eyes a couple of deep breaths like you know just re-remind yourself of the intention you want to take into the conversation and go from there yeah and I guess it's also when you're interviewing someone the impetus is on the other person right so all you have to really do is ask the questions and then lead them which is why I enjoy being in this part, whereas you're probably not so often on the seat that you're in right now where you're like, oh, I have to <laughs> talk about my own. Um, so what I try and do with guests in the beginning is to get them get a bit of a feel for the origin story, like where, yeah, sure. yeah so where did Holly Ransom come from? Uh, Holly Ransom came from, I feel like I have to describe myself two ways, because I grew up in Western Australia in Perth, and, and most of my childhood was sort of split between Perth and this tiny little country town, uh, four and a half hours south called Denmark, where my grandparents and auntie and cousins and everyone lived. Yeah. Um, but I feel Denmark, like I'm a hybrid model, you know, because I've, I've lived in the East Coast now for seven, eight years. And so I feel like yeah. I need to always explain myself. I don't make sense as one or the other. I'm a, I'm a hybrid model. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Bit of both. So exactly. is that where you went to school and everything in Denmark? Uh, no, I went to school in Perth, but sort of every holiday and every free minute was um, in the in the southwest. So that town holds a particularly special place in my heart. Um, yeah. It's a very beautiful part of the world, very, very quiet, probably only a population of maybe 4,000 people. So pretty small. Oh, wow. um, everyone knows everyone. Yeah, exactly. Everybody knows everyone, which people actually say about Perth anyway, let alone, you know, country towns yeah. in Western Australia. So, yeah, um, that was where, where I grew up in the Wild West. Yeah. And so, and now you're living in Sydney, is that right? Living in Melbourne. So I've been oh, caught up in the, the world's longest lockdown, which has been wonderful. Yeah, oh um, my Lord. Oh my, <laughs> all our sympathies to you. Because are you in New Zealand? Is that where you're recording yeah, I'm in, And so funnily enough, in an area that where you would have grown up. So the place that I live is called Golden Bay. It's in the northernmost part of the South Island of New Zealand. Beautiful. And also very five thousand people, so we're pretty lucky here that yeah it hasn't really come to us. And I mean, we did have a little bit of a lockdown, but I was yeah. just about to ask: Have you been constrained at all, or is it largely being confined? No, so I've been playing football regularly. It's all great. It's just those guys up in Auckland who are now, I think, three months, and they're all going very stir crazy. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a problem in our country at the moment the divide yeah. they feel unfairly treated but hey you had to deal with Melbourne I had a guest Natalie on she was from Melbourne and she'd moved to Sydney to get out of the lockdown and then right <laughs> when she got to Sydney it locked down so she can't we really all get know it. those stories of people who managed yeah. to just nail their timing and people who yeah. couldn't have had worse timing in terms of you know sea changes and tree changes and relocations in the last two years so yeah. um, Natalie yeah. sounds like she didn't quite land it unfortunately for her oh unfortunately not so um well we're seeing a great influx of people here though where I live from Wellington and Auckland just ever since last year just you can see the the, the types of cars driving around, the way people are dressed is still this kind of like city mentality, but they're trying to like find that transition out of the city because obviously so many people are working remotely now. And yeah, it's all new world. I know. And um, we'll get to that a little bit, like especially with you having talked to Sophia and AI potentially <laughs> becoming leadership models in the world. I was going to ask, how did you find your way out of this like remote, blissful, idyllic, growing up to then ending up, you know, doing what you studying hard. What happened? 
Uh, I, like, as you would know all too well, I think it's so hard to pinpoint those to a single moment. Like, I think yep. life is such a compounding of decisions. Um, and I think, it, you know, a lot of it comes from just uh, more, more or less like individual moments, more, uh, I guess, those really pivotal earning le- early lessons, like the people who um, believe in you and surrounding yourself with the right kind of support crew who help you have the confidence to set big goals yep. to begin with and then help you kind of skate a plan towards them. And then, you know, uh, I think those first few times where you do step out of kind of your known world and uh, you, you land some of it, not necessarily perfectly, but you go, hey, yeah. wow, maybe, maybe I could do that again. Maybe I could do it better this time. What would that look like? And so I think it's, it's very much a compounding of that. I think I always had, you know, um, my grandmother often describes me as being born in perpetual motion. Um, so I think there's always been this oh, wow. strong sense That's a great... of, uh, of drive, of motivation. Like a tadpole. Exactly. Never wanted to sit still. I had, had places to go. Gosh knows what they were as a four or five-year-old. Yeah. But um, there was always a hunger in me. I, I just think I have felt this sense from a very young age that we only get so many rotations around the sun and you may yeah. as well make yours count. And, exactly. you know, we're, we're here to make a difference. We're here to do something. And, you know, to the best of our ability in our own way, um, each of us should be thinking about that, whether that's the way that you love and care for others, whether that's the way that you put your, um, you know, world into uh, your meaning and impact into work through your, your vocation, um, whether it's that, the way you express your creativity, whether it's, you know, how well you show up for people who are less fortunate than you, like whatever yeah. that is, I think, you know, we've all got a responsibility to do that, particularly when we're as blessed as we are in countries like Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So was this the grandmother that said you were constantly on the move? Is that the same grandmother who stuck up, stuck up to only. that bully in the, yep. in the aisle? Yeah. That's such a neat little part in your book. I love that, which kind of inspired you that, yeah, that is something that you can do. You can stand up to these people that are, you know, trying to bully others and you can do it being, yeah. And I think Uh, for those who haven't read the book too, like for for me, the the story is grandma, we were shopping when I was four or five years old and there was this um, giant of a man at that stage of my life who was um, having a real go at the young lady who was on the checkout, sort of she'd given him the wrong change and he was really digging into her about it and he was quite big and aggressive and my grandmother's five foot tall and, you know, before I knew it, she'd inserted herself between the giant and this poor girl who just looked like she wanted to melt into the floor and, you know, put her finger up to this guy and said, how dare you talk to that young woman like that? You apologise. And this guy looked like he'd never been told off in his life. It was yeah, quite comical. Amazing. You know, I remember, you know, this blank stare and it took a few seconds to register. And then he, he got quite embarrassed and he sort of mumbled sorry and grabbed his things and rushed off. And, you know, my grandma oh, proceeded like nothing had happened, you know, paid for yeah. bread and milk and off we go and didn't realise I hadn't followed her. You know, I was still kind of wedded to watching this scene, um, you know, stuck to the floor uh, and watching what was playing out in front of me. And, yeah. you know, she, I said to her, you know, grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, you know, honey, if you walk past it, you, you tell the world it's okay. And the thing for me, yeah, about I love story, that. you know, and it took me so much longer in life to understand what that truly meant in the sense of what grandma said. Yeah, same. Was- I had to reread that like three or four times until it finally set in that line. I was like, did she make a spelling mistake there? And then I was like, <laughs> no, yeah, to say that it's okay. I love the way you phrased that. And well, it was, it was a credit to grandma in the moment. But what I also think was so significant about it is she didn't say it, she did it. And I understood yep. what she did long before I understood what she said. 
and and there was so much significance to the fact my wow. grandma who had no no formal authority she wasn't shop manager she wasn't in no. any position of leadership that meant you know that was her responsibility to make sure people weren't treating other people like that um but she took it upon herself because in her view, nobody gets to treat anybody else like that. And in that moment, you know, what she did for me as a role model was set the tone for how I should be living my life and making sure every interaction and every situation I'm in, that's how other people are being treated too. So that yep. power of kind of the way that we role model and the importance of not what we say, but the notion of our actions or the idea that our actions match our words and our good intentions took yep. on a whole new level of meaning in that moment because grandma didn't say it as so many can she actually did it in a moment where you know she she's much smaller than the person who's who's would have been easier to not say anything yeah would have been easy to say oh that wasn't okay you know and debrief afterwards in the car um but she she really stepped in in that moment and she's done it consistently throughout my life whether it's to make people feel bigger or to make sure that nobody's getting away with making anyone feel small yeah, in Germany, there's we have this word. It's called Zivilcourage. It means civil courage to oh, speak like up. It. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We everyone has a moral compass, but whether or not you act on that is a different thing. So I get that. With me, my I had an early experience of someone pointing out racism to someone in front of me, and that has stuck oh. with me. How uncomfortable that is, you know, especially when people make you know, these little sort of jokes that are not really racist, but they are. And then to just point out and say, that's actually something racist that you're saying. It's super uncomfortable. It makes you feel awkward in the moment, but walking away from it, you feel a hell of a lot better than having not said anything and just laughed nervously when someone says that. Completely, completely. Yeah. And, and they all compound too. If, you know, if we don't speak up in those moments, you know, people continue to feel more emboldened or they think that's okay yeah. or they think that's appropriate humor and, you know, yeah, I mean, look what happened in America. Out. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's just, yeah, and you get people kind of appeasing it and making it sound like it's okay. Um, so that was something that happened. I think you also, it's a lot about what I felt with this book was it's a lot of it's overcoming, op- seeing obstacles, overcoming obstacles. And you talk a little bit about when you were a kid and you were, you loved playing I, you call it footy, right? It's Aussie rules football, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and great. how at one point you weren't allowed to play it anymore because you were a woman. Mm. And how, I mean, how did you deal with that as a ch- child? Did you did you kick up a fuss? Oh, it was crushing. I mean, I, yeah. I was not really a kid that, that cried and I can still recall like the crocodile tears, you know, in yeah. terms of the, just the, they, like I was bawling the day where I was told, you know, because it was all my friends at that point in time and I loved it and it was fun and I was part of a team and, you know, so much as a 10-year-old that it really don't compute around. What do you mean yeah. I can't play anymore? What do you mean I can't play because I'm a girl? You know, I've played with the boys up to this point and why am I not allowed to anymore? And Were like, you the only girl, Holly? I was the only girl on my team, yeah. yeah. But the boys never made me feel, you know. Um, no, because I was going to ask that. Like, how did you do that with changing rooms and stuff? Is just everyone together or uh, at it's that like, age, age it doesn't? Yeah, at age 10, I don't think you really, I'm sorry, no. I certainly wasn't conscious of any of that. It was no. sort of you, you turned up in, you know, what you were to play and you went home in it and, you know, that was about it. So um, there was never really any awkwardness about any of that. But I think for, you know, me, it really lit a fire around, um frustration uh around inequality and that people and and, you know i think there are always there's always a significance to the moment you know like you described of your friends sort of pointing something out to you before and those moments where our bubble gets burst whether it's 
through things that happen to us or whether it's things that yeah. we witness or whether it's people are making us aware of our own blind spots that often yeah. are quite formative experiences. And so for me, I think that really lit a fire around kind of the diversity and inclusion work that I've been, you know, passionately involved in sort of ever since. And it's really full circle to me, you know, as a director of the, the Mighty Port Adelaide football. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say just now. It had a beautiful yeah. outcome in the end. Being the youngest female director of an Aussie Rules football club. What is it well, called, Port Adelaide? Port Adelaide. And more importantly yeah. to me, like we've, we've just won our AFLW licence. We will have a women's team, you know, as of wow. next season. And so Amazing. to be involved in, in helping our club bring to fruition, you know, we're a proud club, 151 years old and counting, you know, one of the, yeah. the biggest changes in the history of our football club to now think that anyone who grows up passionately barracking for our club can run out and play for us, you know, whether they're male or female. So cool. Or non-binary for that matter. Is so yeah. exciting to to think about and and to see that happen in my lifetime. And George played some small part in that. Feels feels like the the pain and anguish I felt as a ten year old has sort of um, you know not been in vain. Yeah, exactly. So uh, incredible. So that wasn't an option when you were younger. Obviously, they didn't have. No, there girl. was no formal yeah. pathway. I mean, it's so encouraging no. now watching the um the the New Zealand um uh team uh, play rugby on the weekend, the women's team, and yeah. it's just incredible seeing you know both the national team level and the investment in the kind of um, the competition, whether it's round ball football, whether it's rugby, you know, you name it, we're starting to see really fantastic international competition in that regard. And also the development of kind of domestic leagues of women's sport, just taking on a whole new level of professionalism a long yeah. way off, you know, where it will be. Uh, oh time. yeah, it you is. Know, but it takes, it takes people within us. the club. Yeah, exactly. So we've got, I play, so ours is soccer, obviously, football. It's not Aussie rules, but. Yeah, so I'm, my partner I'm, would agree with that version. That's the right <laughs> no, in our household. No. So I was just saying in our local club, we had this amazing guy turn up out of the blue who was an ex all white keeper who's now become the president of our club. And his focus was to put the women's team as the as the number one of the club it's so often as the men's team and everyone always talks about so he's now completely reshaped the ethos of the club and has attracted so many women to come and play I mean it's been an unbelievable yeah so in all it was just a little bit of a shift in the way we presented ourselves on social media and what we spoke about and and yeah and having this driver at the behind saying like listen what we're doing at the moment is it's not right. Like the women have far less opportunities within football and they don't have yeah. academies. And so, yeah, it takes people on the grassroots to, you know, A, get inspired by people like you and then B, to take the reins and really push for it themselves. And, and to know, and this is what I love about your book, is it's, is it's not aimed at the CEOs. It's not aimed at business leaders. It's not aimed at any of that. It's aimed at every human being on the planet and um, really understanding that it is within every single person to make a difference and that doesn't mean to lead a thousand people to do whatever it means to lead your own life and to take responsibility for those things that you want to change and so I guess we need to talk about that so it's called the leading edge and you've just published it I guess a couple of months ago it came out on penguin yep is that right mm-hmm. and um I was gonna say is this something that you've been wanting to do ever since you were a little child was writing something was writing in your let's say toolbox from a young age or is this something you just felt you needed to get out because of all the wisdom that you've gained over the years speaking to all these incredible people 
Uh, well, firstly, thank you for the wonderful things you said about the book, Vera, because it's so heartwarming to hear people who've read it say exactly that in the sense of what I really wanted to do was make a different contribution to the leadership library. And I think yeah. most importantly to, to do exactly what you described there, that this idea of we actually need to reclaim that word a little bit because the way that we've told the stories about who leaders are um, firstly is really lacking diversity. So there's a whole lot of people who look at the library and go, oh, if that's what a leader looks like, if that's yeah. the gender that they are, if that's the, if the ethnicity or the culture, if that's the, um, the sectors that they come from, oh, that's not me, I don't look like them, therefore I can't be a leader. And it's the same sort of to how we've lionised certain figures. You know, we, we tend to place a leadership focus and uh, on yeah. people who have mobilised billions of dollars, led large-scale organisations, you know, led countries. And that is, you know, a context where leadership is applied without question. But I think we need to reclaim that word and go, actually, each and every one of us is leading every day. What my grandma did at the supermarket that day was leadership. Yeah. Um, and we all have influence in the way that we interact with others, in what we walk past or what we don't choose to walk past, in what we choose to devote our time, effort and energy to, um, yeah. you know, in, in terms of the causes that we get involved in and things like that. So I really wanted to to reclaim that and to try and offer a far greater diversity. So, you know, there's 60 case studies in the book. There's an equal gender split. There's yeah. you know, leaders from 22 different countries. There's all generations. There's, there's a, 42 different sectors. So I hope more people can go, oh, wow, leadership can look like that. And if it can yeah. look like that, I can be that sort of leader or maybe I can have a go or that's interesting. I'd never thought about that as leadership before and maybe that is what leadership looks like. So I hope it could really challenge yeah. that um, because, you know, really the catalyst, it wasn't something I'd, I felt inspired to do from a young age. The catalyst was going and doing my master's at, at Harvard and, and spending a lot of time looking at public leadership and being really disappointed by a lot of, kind of what existed out there as the existing reading material going, yeah. this is meant to inspire a new generation. And I don't use that in terms of age. I mean that anyone who's frustrated by the status quo right now and thinking I can play a role in being the change the world needs to see yeah. and I want to see in the world, then we're not doing a very good job of providing them with, with role models. And secondly, yeah. you know, the toolkit isn't all that practical for the challenges of 2021 and beyond. Like it's still, it didn't feel like it was match fit for kind of the, the pace of change and some of the pressure. And, you know, there still isn't a lot of literature in the leadership books, at least, around mental health and resilience. You know, these are kind of often their own little category. And as we know, they're kind of, all this is so intertwined, um, let yeah. alone the dynamics of how, you know, culture and followership and everything are changing the face of leadership as we know it. So yeah. it was a want to kind of, I guess, provide a more diverse set of stories and make it really pragmatic so hopefully in reading every chapter, yeah. people can go, cool, I understand how to actually make this real in my life. I understand either questions I can reflect on or things I can go and do to bring, bring this to life. Yeah, so I was going to say that that's where your book really stands out from the rest is that it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's almost like a scientific thesis. And that's the one <laughs> thing that you'd said you'd always, you'd wanted to see, but you couldn't find when you were a child, like you or at least when you were when in your more youthful phase and you were like, where's the science behind leadership? Like, I know I want to do these things, but how can I implement them? And that's where I'm like, when people hear this, like, it's not a self-help book. It's not one of those leadership gurus. 
super candid about your own personal experience, which is yeah. void from all those other books. There's that real personal moment. You talk about how you battled depression when you were younger and how you know dealt with the shame of seeing it as weak, but then yeah. turned it out into a strength. And there's like, there's these amazing, just these talking points that you've got that are super easy to remember. Like the two that stuck out right from the beginning were that the deep introspection and the um, stepping in where the lightning strikes. I just thought like mm. I was, I got goosebumps when I read them and I was like, of course, that's exactly what it is. Like, how do you describe that making yourself available for every chance and opportunity that the universe can possibly provide yourself? Yeah. You stand up when the lightning's striking. We always get told to lie down in the field or like, don't go to a car, but you're like, nah, do the opposite. You want to make a change, <laughs> go to where the action is as we speak. And you have these great, um examples of each single one so like the deep introspection you spoke about the all blacks and why are the all blacks the winningest most sports team in the world and you talk about their background yeah do you want to go into a little bit about that why did you use the all blacks as your case study Should oh, the New mean, Zealanders how, love could to we, how can we not i mean what an incredible example of a, a culture of sustained success i mean they're they're remarkable they're such a credit to new zealand they're a credit to themselves um, and, you know, for me, uh, and, and James Kerr does this brilliantly in his book Legacy, but, you know, I wanted to focus on what are the elements that make them so fantastic and what are the, the key kind of cultural values. And we, we talk on, you know, a few of them in terms of the, the mindset that they approach uh, their work with, everything from the humility of the, the value of sort of um, sweep the sheds and that idea that everyone, yeah. no one's too big or uh, too too big a superstar to not be in charge and responsible for the the environment and making sure everyone's playing a role in in showing respect to one another through the way that they take care of, of shared space and resources. But yeah. also this idea of, you know, they're really clear on their why. It's a beautiful, obviously, intertwinement of, of um, Maori tradition in the All Blacks. Yeah. There's a real, um, a real sense of legacy, you know, the, even the way, yeah. you know, um, when you get your first uh, jersey and, you know, you, you kind of tell a few stories of players sort of sitting there in deep reflection of who's worn that before and what's, what chapter am I going to write and the journal that you're given to start taking down the notes of what's my contribution going to be to this incredible storied history of this phenomenally successful New Zealand team and what we represent to not only our nation but, you know, what we represent on behalf of our nation to the world. So just this yeah. way that they're anchored in, you know, this really deep sense of purpose and then the way that that purpose then um, manifests in the very strong anchor values. And I think that's really important, that idea that it's really great to know our why, but then we've got to think about what are the, the principles or the habits that flow from that that allow us to live in, in a virtuous cycle of that why and bring it to life. And the All Blacks for me have got this beautiful alignment between, you know, their why uh, and then the kind of key habits and principles that really allow them to bring it to life. Yeah. So I'd never actually thought about that. It's, and it's so true. Like Maori have a, such a strong, it's their whakapapa, right? It's your, mm -hmm. your relation, your lineage, and you, everything is done in the, through the eyes of the people that came before you. And that, so Holly, it was amazing hearing you speaking about the what and the why, but it might be the listeners might want to understand what exactly you're referring to there. Mm -hmm. Specifically, when you're talking about the what versus the why in traditional leadership, the way corporations view it through, you know, key performance indexes and growth mm -hmm. measurements versus, yeah, the way you see things unfolding in the future. So what is this what and the why and why is it important? 
Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, and one of the things that is sort of, uh, I guess, a central tenet of how I think leadership is, is shifting is the model of leadership we kind of built in the industrial age. If you think about, you know, the Jack Welsh era of leadership at GE and all yeah. of that, you know, it was a lot uh, about, you know, maximising output with number of widgets we can get out of factories and things like that. And typically that led to a centralised um, decision-making structure where there was lots of hierarchy and we had a command and control style of leadership, you know, quite militaristic. But, you know, that whole notion of if I, if I give an order, it kind of cascades its way down the organisation and people follow suit. Now, we've had a, a shift that's been taking place for a long time, you know, prior to the COVID pandemic, but I think it's definitely accelerated and we're seeing it in this conversation around the Great Resignation and this renewed sense of urgency that organisations have around culture and being a destination where people want to show up and work and this idea that employees are, are, are making sea changes and tree changes, you know, they're, they're uprooting themselves, they're changing careers, they're changing jobs um, yeah. based on purpose and, and fulfilment and a want for a different set of things in, in their life. Uh, and that's going to be a really interesting recalibration. But part of what we've known is we've been on this journey away from this idea of command and control more to this sense of, of followership, you know, this idea yeah. of people wanting to work for uh, a vision, you know, for an organisation. They want to work for a leader who they're inspired by, the way that they put their vision and their values to, uh, into life and into work every day. Um, and so yeah. there's two really different styles of leadership there. One sort of a push leadership that comes with command and control and the other is the pull of, you know, can we, can we get yeah. people to pull towards our, our um, I guess, following our vision? So in that world, you know, and Simon Sinek, my um, good friend, had had a great TED Talk that I hope many of your listeners have already watched. If they haven't, they should check out his Start With Why TED yeah. Talk. It's got 50 million views. And, and part of this is really Simon's, you know, premise of his TED Talk from 10 years ago that we are really good as human beings at talking about what. And it doesn't matter so much in a command and control and hierarchical leadership structure that we talk about what. Because there's, yeah. there's no necessarily imperative to be focusing on anything bigger than that. We say what we need done, people follow suit, cool. That's not how organisations, certainly for the last 10, 15 years, that have topped the best places to work work. And it's not how, particularly, millennials and Gen Zs want to work. And broadly, we're seeing this shift where it's like, I want to know that we've got a purpose that's bigger than our bottom line. I want to have a sense of being pulled towards... Um, a vision. Why do we exist? Why are we producing that new product? Why would I come and work here versus another organisation? And so as Simon makes the point, we've actually got to start with the why. If we think about three concentric circles, you know, why in the centre, how after that, then what on the outside. We're pretty good at yeah. going from the outside in by default. What he suggests is we need to go from the inside out. And so we wow. need to get better at leading with our why. And, and I think the important thing for me in that is not just knowing how to do that once, some companies I've worked with over the last decade have been really good at kind of doing the strategy day where we work that out and we put it on a piece of paper, cool, great, sorted. But then not thinking about how the why shows up week to week, meeting to meeting, uh, you know, conversation to conversation. And the organisations who do this stuff really well make that purpose tangible. You feel it. Uh, you see it physically. when. Can you give an example, day. Holly? Like the the mission statement at the beginning of every meeting or how, how, how do they make it tangible? Yeah. Like, so, you know, some organizations who, you know, have, uh, you know, have safety uh, as a big part of their workplace culture, they will start every meeting with a safety share and talking about, you know, 
uh, whether it's a lived experience of someone in the team or whether it's something their organisation has helped uh, someone else to safely do, that idea of helping people safely get to work. You know, some organisations yeah. who talk about, you know, exceptional customer experience will share a customer story every time they get together or they'll invite customers into their meetings routinely or they'll record little videos that they'll play to the people all the time and say, see these magic moments? That's why we exist. We exist. Wow, of, amazing. You know, those, those tears rushing down that, uh, that customer's face right now, that's what we did as an organisation. Let's do more of that today. So, you know, yeah. that way of making the, I guess, the, the impact that you have or seek to have really real and then bringing it to life routinely. Um, yeah. It's really easy for this sort of stuff to gather dust somewhere in a, a desk um, or to leave on the About Us page of the website, but not yeah. come to life. And I think to just real, pay lip service, basically. Well, and I think Simon's real point is the greatest tool that we've got in our communication toolkit is this why piece. And so, if it's our greatest tool, why would we be using it once a year, once every five years? Why would we yeah. be letting it sit on a page of a website that maybe one in fifty people click on? Like this actually needs to be something that we use really routinely, and we find a way of bringing to life. In, in all different um, ways. You know, some, some companies I see write the values on, uh, on the walls. Some have different weeks where they focus and do in, intentional, um, you know, purpose sprints where they'll do, you know, where they'll engage with their customers, where they'll bring their people together, where they'll share stories, where they'll create visibility, where they'll drive new innovation around their particular reason for being. So you can play yeah. with, with all different ways of bringing this to life, but at a really practical level, you know, for those listening. It's worth just asking yourself, you know, what's your why? How clearly can you articulate it? Like if I asked you to put it in a sentence, yeah. um, would you be able to do it? And then the second question for me is how regularly do you anchor to it? You know, is it something that you've got as a screenshot on the background of your phone? So you see it every day. You see it every time your phone disrupts your attention and you're re-reminded of why you're working so hard, why you're putting in those hours, why it is you've taken that risk, whatever that might be. Um, yeah. Or is it something where you've got, you know, a little written on a card near your, your workstation, whether that's at home or at an office or both. Um, but some way of making sure that that's re regularly in your focus and is therefore a key filter for your decision making. Um, yeah. that, that's the part where we start to see, you know, it, it bringing itself to life in a whole new way. Uh, yeah, I love the, the terminology you use there, anchoring yourself to it. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I think probably the most effective way is to tattoo something on a part of your body <laughs> that you see a lot to remind yourself. Um, yeah, so that's absolutely brilliant. And it really gets you thinking this why it's not the easiest thing to do. And I think that's why people shy away from it, even from an individualistic perspective, let alone a massive corporation, right? So, um, and that's what they encourage you to do. Obviously, when you see a therapist or a counselor and you're going through a rough period is to anchor in yourself to a why. And once you've got that, it's easier to get yourself out, I guess. Um, so I was going to come back to a really super basic question. Um, and that is, why do humans need leaders, Holly? What would be your answer to that? Why do we even well, need them? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think one of the things that we know is um, leaders, and I, and I do use that inclusively of all of us, because I do think we, we all lead in different contexts. And we yeah. need to, I think one of the problems we've got with, with phrases like that is we, we can sometimes sit waiting for leaders. And I think there's a little bit of that at the moment. You know, when we, we see the frustration around COP last week, the Climate yeah. Change Summit that happened in Glasgow, 
and we sit there waiting for better leadership and we kind of get frustrated by the state of leadership and, and we fail to actually realise that we are leaders capable of moving the dial. We're not in that room, no, but all of us can be thinking about, well, how consciously am I living my environmental priorities? You know, are we yeah. as environmental a household as we could be? Is my company, you know, um, carbon neutral? Or have we got a plan to get to net zero as an organisation? Um, you know, do I, uh, you know, pay that little bit extra to get um, my uh, carbon credits, you know, when it comes to when I fly or uh, to yeah. generate my power from renewable resources? So I think that is the one risk is, is there can be this little bit of uh, messiah type of culture around the way that we often talk about leaders. And it can mean that we kind of sit there waiting for the next um, messianic figure to come along and kind of yeah. provide the vision and the get up and go to do things. But I think what we know about good leaders is, and again, I use this in a term that all of us can access, is there's something wonderful that all of us get caught up in around a a great vision. There's something wonderful about what good leaders do in making us believe that we can achieve beyond the realm of what we think is possible in this moment. Amazing. critical that leaders do around providing this sense of momentum and hope and belief and, and often kind of a an organising structure, right, like a focus, whether it's a goal that we're talking about or whether it's a, um, a you know, deliberate plan that we've got to collectively tackle something together or it's the, the level of um, excitement and uh, belief that we can see in leaders of movements at the moment right around the world, you know, which are, which are functioning with far less, you know, physical structure than a lot of types of leadership we've seen previously but with this enormous sense of people power. Um, yeah. belief that the collective voice and collective action can make a difference. So I think we do, we need elements of what leaders or what we associate with leadership. But the idea of that we need leaders and, and the notion that people could interpret that as we need to sit here waiting for leaders, we need new leaders to solve our problems versus we can be those leaders and we, yeah. we are absolutely capable of providing the leadership that both we as individuals and we collectively need. That to me is the risk in the idea of um, what, what, I guess the, the question statement. Yeah, no, I love that's what you, in your book, you address, and you address it a lot, saying that, you repeat it, is that it's m- more of like, Yuval Noah Harari says that we're, the reason why humans did so well compared to other new apes is because we have stories. And I like mm. what you said around how leaders, they have a vision. And so where, because I mean, that's something that a lot of us lack in our life until we have an epiphany or whatever, is why, where are we going and what are we striving towards? And I like you just said, like leaders have the ability to inspire people to fuck to a better future, let's say, the better than it is. And you talk about that a lot. And especially, I think it was something Michelle Obama said to you about how can I be better than I was or something like that am i is what i'm doing better than circumstance or something it was a bigger than me yeah, right yeah. and i think that's what is bigger than me yeah exactly so what is it that is a good leader this was my next question is what makes a good leader great and i guess you kind of answered it. it's it's the ability to inspire others to do exactly yeah. that and it's also it's also courage you know um courage leadership yeah. in, and particularly what we talk about the leading edge is you're not leading if you're doing what everyone else is doing. That's being a part of the pack, um, yeah. you know, and, unless that's a conscious choice to associate yourself with a group of people that are, you know, doing something that's values aligned and, in, you know, but often I think when we're talking about 
uh, you know, that notion of kind of status quo, uh, that, that's what I'm talking about departing from, I guess. And when I, often people ask me, you know, what's the, the common denominator between all these incredible people that you've, you've had the opportunity to interview? And I have been remarkably fortunate to, to interview some of the world's um, great minds and great leaders. And, and the thing I would say, one is that they all have this incredibly clarifying sense of purpose. There's this real sense of they know what they're about. They know what they're trying to do on the planet. And there's a real, um, a real sense of extraordinary clarity, focus and energy that comes with being in the orbit of someone who's really clear on what they are stand for. Uh, and that's definitely one common factor amongst them all. The second thing I would say is they've all been courageous enough to launch a new idea, to share divergent thinking, to step out and stand for something, to try and rally people towards a goal. And that has all come with detractors and critics and naysayers and, yep. you know, people who don't think they're worthy or all of that. And so I think there's a lot of courage involved in it too. You know, leadership takes courage. It takes courage to share a goal or a vision with someone. It takes yep. courage to try and do something different to what we've done before or to start again or to, to try and be better when better can involve confronting things that are hard and difficult and challenging, whether that's, you know, conversations that we know we need to have or whether that's being a beginner. Um, and, you know, I think that would be the other thing I would say is that leadership is courage in action. Uh, and the, nice. Or the more all of us can challenge ourselves to go, what's the courageous thing I'm going to do today for better me, better us, better world? If yeah. all of us could just think about that idea and put that into motion daily, um, the compound effect of that would be quite extraordinary. Incredible. So I loved what you said. Like you made, you made these people, you know, we're talking like these aren't, these are Condoleezza Rice. This is like Malcolm Gladwell, Barack Obama. These are like huge names. You made them really human in this. And like you also mentioned the whole, like they're not exempt from mental health problems. You know, everyone has anxiety and probably leaders have more of that than anyone else. But the difference between them and someone who gets hamstrung by anxiety is this sort of a mindset that they take on. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I think part of it is touching back on something we've already touched on, Chris, which is that idea of they've got a really clear why. And you yep. need a really clear why when you're in going to be, uh, I guess, out there in the arena, in the fire, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use for it. But, you know, that's what makes it doable. That's what makes it worth it. That you believe in something so wholeheartedly that, you know, yes, people aren't going to believe. Uh, yes, I'm going to have people that challenge me. Yes, I'm going to have days where things just don't stick the way that I want them to. But because I believe so much in my why, I'm going to get up and go again, or I'm going to choose yeah. to refocus. And I'm going to, yeah, and I think, you know, they're, they're smart about the way they put systems to work for themselves. So these people all have really great support crews. They've all yeah. developed their own mindfulness strategies because this stuff is just part and parcel of putting ourselves out there, of having a go, um, of holding an opinion, of being seen for our whole selves, you know, there, there's a lot about that that threatens and intimidates people who would quite like things to stay exactly as they are. Um, yep. And, you know, the, the world exactly as it is, as we know all too well, is only serving a very small uh, population of people. Um, yep. And in order to make sure that opportunity is more equally distributed, in order to make sure that there is greater diversity um, of, uh, or, and equality of opportunity, 
um, we have to shift that. No one gives up power willingly. This is inherently, no. you know, a lot of challenge and friction in what we're talking about here. Um, but I, and I think that's where that piece around having a really clear sense of why. Why are we doing it? Um, why does our company need to exist? Why is this nonprofit organisation so important? Why am I giving the time over to this cause um, versus any other? The more that we can be clear about that ourselves, and the more that we can then be clear about that collectively in our team or in our company or in our community group, whatever it might look like, in our family even, you know, having a conversation around why, as parents, we work so hard or why we as a household yeah. choose to generate our power from sustainable resources or not have a car or something like that. You know, the more that yeah. we're creating a conversation around this, the more that we're starting, you know, that, that shared learning, the more that it then makes it possible for us in those moments of challenge to re-remind ourselves that it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. And so I think also in terms of speaking of climate change and COP26 and all that, I think like for parents having children, that is a pretty damn good why for oh, yeah. changing behavior and yeah, you know, embracing Completely. disruptive think, technologies. Know, yeah. Next generation uh, uh, inspire me continually on it. You know, I posted a panel the other week with a whole bunch of leaders in their, their 20s and 30s in Australia on climate change. And it was the most refreshing conversation on climate change I've ever had in terms of their not just passion, but the way that they are making decisions in their own lives, in their own businesses, um, yeah. with their platform and their voice to really take a stand on this and push for better and to be examples of better themselves. I mean, that's what I loved about it was this idea of I'm not asking anyone to do anything I'm not trying to do, whether it's running a more ethical, sustainable business, whether that's being really mindful around my own personal practices, whether that's trying to rally friends and family to make better decisions and choices or to understand at least the consequences and trade-offs of the choices they are making so they're more informed about them. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's what we need. And I, I think it's incredible, you know, the, the leadership we're seeing from kids in, in primary school on this particular matter. And I think if we opened up more of those conversations around dinner tables and classroom tables and used that as a, cat, a catalyst a different way of making decisions the world would be a better place yeah totally so in terms of this other guest natalie that i had on and she runs this sort of it's like a wildlife conservation awareness company called my green world and she's got an 11 year old on her board of directors right who is wow. like this brand ambassador for animals and is absolutely in love with animals and is so passionate about them um but so you spoke a little bit about the climate change conference that was going and um, in terms of leadership, there was this great meme going around, which I think you might have seen as well, about it says like Sydney man announces that he's phasing out alcohol by 2050. <laughs> yes, I might have you know? said that in my newsletter on the weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, it's exactly, it's like, that's not a real thing. Like any person who's ever you know battled with any addiction or given up alcohol knows that phasing out doesn't that's not you're still you know at the behest of the addiction and there's so many parallels between you know our collective society's addiction to alcohol and our addiction to fossil fuels let's say and the, the comfort that this brings um and there's a lot in the media especially in germany at the moment where they're talking about going 100 percent renewable by a certain date mm. people saying blackouts and they're you know painting these dystopian horrible images of what will happen if there's no electricity and um but it's again it's a, like you say it's the people who are benefiting from the current system are scared of letting go and letting you know their huge massive piece of the pie be shared amongst others so i'm saying 
this is my question is what form of leadership will it require to actually bring about these fundamental changes we have to in society to avoid being that Sydney man who's never going to give up beer anyway by 2050, <laughs> right? Well, I think there's so many different ways you can take that question. I mean, one is that it's going to take all of us. And one part of the, what I loved about that article was this idea that, firstly, as well, his, his premise was you can't do something that crazy, in his words, overnight. So he's not going to yeah. do anything for the next two decades, and then he's going to begin phasing out at that point, which, I, which was probably the bit that made me laugh out loud the most. Yeah. Um, and that idea that, you know, behaviour change starts um, with smart where you are right now with what you have making yep. a commitment to doing something different. Um, you know, and sometimes people need to replace a routine. You know, friends of mine that have given up drinking coffee have gone, okay, I'm, I'm going to switch off caffeine. But I, it was actually, if I understand the routine, it was actually about social connection. So I was using coffee yep. as a vehicle to catch up with people. So is there a new way I can get the fix ultimately for what I wanted there? Maybe I can catch up with people to go for a bike ride or maybe I can catch up with people to go for a walk or I can find a yep. way of starting a book club or something like that. So I'm going to actually have what I needed or what that outlet provided me with replaced, or maybe I'm switching to another hot beverage because that was what I actually needed. So that idea of it's going to take all of us committing to making changes within our agency. So that means yep. us as individuals, you know, choosing to catch public transport versus drive, choosing to be, um, you know, households that make more conscious purchasing decisions to reduce our footprint or recycle better it's also going to take um, really diverse leadership. I mean, what we know is that no one industry, no one sector can solve this challenge. This is a huge global issue that we're in together. And so it's going to take, you know, I think one of the encouraging things, you know, out of, out of COP was the commitment of so many of the world's financial organisations led by Mark Carney and others to really yeah. commit to thinking about the, the business model because so much of the challenge we've got right now is that we do not at the moment have funding deployed the way that we need to, to scale the technologies, to, to build the infrastructure necessary to make our plan um, real, I guess. So there's a big gap there in terms of the implementation and, and the reality. And it's going to take leaders doing the unglamorous work, the unsexy work of building new business models and coming up with new ways of funding things for us to realise the, um, the world that we need it to be in terms of a net zero reality. Um, in practicality. So there's, there's a yeah. lot of work there that's going to require leaders from finance, leaders from civil society. You know, even when we look at the number of climate refugees that are forecast over the next two decades by virtue of yeah. rising sea tides and all manner of climate issues that will just make certain parts of the globe inhospitable. That's a whole new social welfare challenge for us as a global community. How are we going to respond to that? What will organisations' leadership on that look like? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a lot of diversity. And, and then the third thing is it's it's going to take courage. I mean, this is a big yep. departure from the way that we've done things. So it does speak to what we touched on earlier that, you know, this does come with sacrifice now in order for longer term gain, so to speak, uh, in, in some aspects, in others, not even. It's just the political consequences that some won't bear. Yeah. Um, but it, it will. It'll take a visionary leader who can stand out there and say, this is right and that's why we're doing it. Um, yeah. And I'm prepared to stand for that. I'm prepared to build... Um, you know, power around that in the sense of I'm going to rally colleagues, I'm going to get uh, bipartisan support, I'm going to build, you know, international um, agreements, bilateral, multilateral, uh, I'm going to work with industry partners to make this real, not just to kind of turn up at the meetings every couple of years or every year and shake hands and smile for photos. Yeah. Um, that's not what makes this real. 
Um, yeah. And so it, it is a real diversity of leaders that's going to make um, the change that we need to see realisable here. Yeah, and I think we, we need optimism as well. And that's another thing that leaders, I think, especially Barack Obama in the face of, you know, some really horrendous yeah. things that happened during his presidency, it's to just put that out there and, and inspire hope. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that it's so easy to be cynical and you meet a lot of intelligent people, highly intelligent people who are just so cynical about the world. And oh, it's right. like... Um, Baruch Spinoza said that cynicism is the refuge of the coward and it's the opposite you know you think like oh okay this person's cynical because they're so smart they know what's going to happen but actually it takes incredible amounts of courage to be optimistic you know and especially in the face of um, you know what could potentially be you know the greatest event ever to hit human our species right so in which sense I I would say the reality of climate refugees being that would be something that we should embrace because that means we're still around right Mm -hmm. and that everything's still working and so that's something where we should be like that's a positive externality that you know i mean how big is australia it's a massive the whole world could fit in that on that continent right i once read somewhere that the entire population of earth could fit into the state of Texas with the population density of Paris, right? That puts overpopulation into a perspective. So this is where I wanted to take this. So I was going to say, this is a question I've written down here. I I, um, unfortunately have a hard stop at one. I have to run to another meeting, but I'm conscious because of that. I'm on the wrong platform. I, um, I, oh, I kind of okay. lost you eight minutes because we've just hit the hour. So I, I'm unfortunately going to have to run, but I'm really happy to make another That's all good. to finish our conversation. Hey, Holly, I would absolutely love... No, well, what we can do is we can have you back next year, oh, early yeah. next year. That would be... And we could finish this off. And you can even prepare for it. I was going to say, since you've spoken to Sophia, who's the AI, this yeah. thing, I was going to ask you, do you think AI will ever replace humans as leaders, especially seeing what oh, Zuckerberg has? Nice. Awesome. I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Holly, Thank for making so the much. time. You. You're a legend. We'll talk soon. Excellent. Thank you, Holly. Bye. Bye. So thank you so much for listening to that. And it was a real joy to have Holly Ransom on. And I urge you to go and buy her book. It's a fantastic read. And it's not like any other leadership book that I have ever read. It really goes into the science behind what makes a leader great. And yeah, I'm going to hold Holly to it. Try to try and get her to come on early next year because I still have so many questions left. The last question I was trying to get to at the end, they're related to climate change and how we need drastic change and how whether or not human leaders are capable of delivering on that and whether or not there ever will be artificially enhanced leaders that will lead humanity. And I wanted to ask Holly, because she has actually interviewed Sophia, which is the world's first AI-generated robot, if she could imagine that at some point there will be artificial intelligence leaders, especially considering what Facebook is doing with Meta and that we're going to have this virtual reality and CEO jobs are going to be increasingly automated because they draw such hefty salaries and whether or not she thinks that there's a possibility 
for an AI-generated leader to come out, especially considering she's gone into the science of it all and just what we would need to do is create algorithms around all these parameters of generosity and humility and self-introspection that we could program AI into and if potentially we could ever have, yeah, an, a virtual leader leading us all to a more prosperous and functioning existence on this planet. So get her book, read it. I was fascinated by it. And yeah, we can look forward to next week. We'll have, I'm interviewing two other writers, Alina Seyfried and Lisa Fremont. We've got both of them on the show. A writer from New York and a writer from New Zealand. So we've got that to look forward to. In the meantime, much love and enjoy your week and we'll see you next week thanks heaps maori ora kia ora kapai much love to you all bye